0: Why, why, why should I really change this? It's, uh, it's not that bad. And structural rhinoplasty was very precise for me, and it was giving me good results.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the July episodes of the Rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. I'm so excited that they brought to us by Suta um, Technique. Germany can you believe it that for the European masters we've got the Germans behind us um, the Suter company is fantastic it's a family-owned company Bert uh, who's taken over from his dad runs a brilliant ship there Their, their big thing is obviously um, bipolar forceps but also they've got a very cool curious machine which uh, is fantastic for turbinate ablation so if you listen to the end I'm gonna give you the contact details for the right person to speak with so without any further ado let's carry on with this episode It is such a pleasure to invite one of the doyens of rhinoplasty. I mean, you you think we are all rhinoplasty geeks and we love rhinoplasty. And then we meet a certain man in Italy who just takes it to the next level. And it is such a pleasure for me to welcome uh, Professor Enrico Robotti to the show tonight. Prof, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Well, it's, what else can I say with all these lavish words, right? (laughs) Okay. It's a pleasure for me as well. I've never done this before, but it will be my first time.
1: Well, Prof, on behalf of all the people from around the world, I mean, this show has been watched and listened to in more than sixty countries. Uh, we've had about fifteen thousand downloads, so it's really been wonderful, and it's it's really great to have you on the show. I, I want to just kick this whole thing off. I mean, we're going to be speaking some there's some very interesting topics. I want to really understand a bit more about cone beam CT scanning and rhinoplasty and um, dorsal augmentation and some of your views on preservation surgery. Um, but before we get into that, what makes, first question, how did you end up getting into rhinoplasty?
0: Well, it's a long story. <clears throat> I mean, I've, I've been a reconstructive surgeon for most of my career. <clears throat> I have trained in the, first in the UK, then in the US. And, uh, and then I've run a department of plastic surgery for many, many years until actually four years ago. And uh, I would say rhinoplasty was a natural offspring from reconstruction. I've always enjoyed playing with reconstruction, especially in the head and neck area, but not only that. I did a lot of lower limb, for instance. And uh, playing with little flaps under magnification with a good light. And and some obviously with a microscope in microsurgery was something I enjoyed. It's just handling tissue. So my first exposure probably was in the U.S. when I had my my first training with Amand Versace, who was my my mentor. One of actually one of the figures I I I, I mostly attached to in my life. A very hard man in some ways. But of a great honesty, a great stamina, and I was—it was he was like a father for me, actually. Mm. So although he wasn't soft, he taught me so many things. And one of the things which I saw him doing, and I said, isn't this wonderful, is cleft noses. Cleft noses were just fascinating for me at the time. Mm. So I was almost grown up with the open exposure, because he was doing a lot of cleft noses. Uh, his mainstay was mostly breasts, so this was a partial exposure, let's say. But that's where the the, the stardust rubbed off my shoulders, I guess. Mm. And I said, well, this is just fascinating. Then for a while, I was a self-didactic person, because at that time there wasn't really many chances, at least in Italy or probably not, not in many other places, to learn rhinoplasty. So it was a learning on textbooks, on uh, photocopies and on Sheen's first, uh, I love these things, first videotapes, I I was studying them so accurately. And so, you know, the marginal exposure started and I said, why? Well, I'm starting to see things. And then in a way after doing for some years my first noses in a, uh, by marginal exposures and, and Sheen's way, I said, well, why don't I go back to see what I, to do what I saw Armand doing in in Rhode Island. And so that's where I started opening. And and since that, it was just a kind of roller coaster. I I really enjoyed doing rhinoplasty so much. I was doing, for instance, a lot of breasts in my private practice. Uh, And breasts were interesting, but it was kind of, in a way, kind of dull, because you were often doing the same things. Mm -hmm. And rhinoplasty was so much like microsurgical, uh, or not even microsurgical, like flaps, nasal reconstruction, which I love to do, facial reconstruction. And probably I got to do more and more and more. And then at some point around the year 2000, it became almost my unique uh, procedure outside of my department. And maybe by 2005 or 2006, it was the, really, I was focusing completely on rhinoplasty. That's the way it went. And, and then again, I was studying, then I developed friends. You know, we started the Bergamo course. I, I had a lot of international connections, and one thing leads to another. But actually, the Bergamo course was one of the major courses at that time, together with the Dallas. And so you get to know friends and uh, one thing again carries to another and rhinoplasty became just my main focus. To some, at some point I actually left my department a few years ago because I was so in love with this operation which was getting more and more complex. Because wow. it's not getting easier, it's no. not getting easier.
1: No, 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 it's especially yeah. with all this preservation stuff. So I want to ask you about the Bergamo course. I mean, between that and Dallas they are the courses. And- Every Tom, Dick and Harry now wants to have a rhinoplasty course, but you can't. um, You know, you you, you, the gold standard is is yourself and Rod's courses. How did you end up starting that and how has COVID affected that for you?
0: Well, uh, I started it probably as a model. I had the Dallas course. I I was there uh, twice when I was very junior and I just loved the way it worked. And I said, why don't we start something like that? Mm In Europe, there was really nothing at that time, and uh, in a way, now probably I would think differently, but in a way I was convinced at that time that open rhinoplasty was the exclusive way to go. My benchmark with closed rhinoplasty was not favorable towards the closed approach. I really considered it a blind approach, which, which is not the case now, although I still do exclusively open. Uh, and then for that reason, I called it Bergam Open Rhinoplasty course. And then I tried to integrate some neighboring closed concepts progressively with time, but still I want to maintain the focus on open. Mm-hmm. Uh, COVID affected it negatively, obviously, because we delayed the 2020 edition, which was the seventh edition to 2021. Then we again delayed it and now it's 2022. And it's still unknown whether it will be hybrid or fully in-person. I'm not so sure it will be fully in-person mm. because this thing is just developing so much. Yeah, and, uh, and so we may end up in a hybrid format, although we will try to do a full in-person course. It's going to be a totally different thing. It's going, uh, the motto is find a way because we we really need to find a way in all this maze of new techniques which is making this operation just unparalleled. I don't think there's any other surgical endeavor uh, like rhinoplasty currently with so much happening and so many things which merit attention. Yeah. You know, the preservation really made a difference. Initially I was a little bit adverse to it since I considered it to be eminently a lot of marketing. But then in time, I I realized that it's making so important changes regarding results. So the Bergamo motto is find a way and it will be essentially structural preservation hybrid.
1: Awesome. And Prof, for the listeners, how do they actually get to register or find out more about the course?
0: Well, it's on the website. It's bergamoplus.com. Uh, We will, the program for the time being is still the same as 2020, although we will update it to some degree, but I'm still kind of having to understand whether it will be hybrid or fully in-person. Most of the program is already there. The faculty is going to be practically confirmed. And uh, again, it's a very... uh, practical course if there's no fooling around it it's video based we just want to understand things
1: sure. so prof uh, a question i had tell us a bit about the rhinoplasty society of europe um i want to i want to know more about it as the listeners how, how do you, it's it's an amazing society that that you guys started a few years ago give us a little bit of the history and what your visions are for it and why people should join you
0: Well, uh, much of this is on the website, but let's briefly say this was due to the vision of Wolfgang. And I have to say there are some giants in rhinoplasty and and without any undue praise uh, Wolfgang Gubisch is probably one of the people who made so many changes because his mind is so, he has this unusual concomitance. I'm not so sure you say this in English of a brilliant mind and a brilliant hand, and this is very unusual. If you think extracorporeal now is just standard for many, or bone suturing, and all these other concepts, uh, the way he treated septum was at that time really a pioneer way. And anyway, so Wolfgang, we, we became friends over time. and. Uh, he had the vision of founding a society which would be focused on rhinoplasty. That's the essence. Of course, there is the AFPS. I mean, of course, that's a very good society, very strong, well-run, and whatever. But we wanted something that would really focus on rhinoplasty as a community of people who would be joined by the same interest, would want to learn more about it. And would have educational tools at their disposal. That's the essence of it. And now we are just—we uh, we, we just actually finished devising the new fellowship we will offer. Uh, we are having a more and more active video library. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we will get back to organize the section courses after this COVID thing is gone forever, hopefully. And essentially, it's a community of people who are animated by the same passion because rhinoplasty has to be a passion mm. so although it's called rhinoplasty society of europe it's not limited to europe we we have we have members from all over the world essentially right and and then during this time we obviously we had a lot of webinars and the webinars we tried to structure them not just to have one a week on multiple topics but try and structure them in a didactic way. And what I mostly value possibly is something that is not always diffuse. You have to be honest when you run these things. I mean, you have to be clear. You have to ask questions which need to be asked, notwithstanding who you're asking them to, because what we want to offer is good learning so that people can have a better result, essentially.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, I love being a part of the society and I, I love listening to all the talks, etc., cetera, et cetera. It's just we obviously miss all the in-person interaction. So you, you touched on the topic around fellowship. Now, our, our secretary general of SOSA, our little rhinoplasty society in South Africa, uh, in Sony, she actually joined you for a fellowship. Um, and she was enthralling me with how hard you work. Before we get to that, tell us a little bit more about how people can actually get further training and further fellowships and what you offer.
0: While mine is a little fellowship, it's a personal thing. I I I now have a setup in which I have an assistant with me for a few years. I have a fellow every six months, and I also have a last year resident from an Italian university. So this this international fellow, which I have for who I have for six or twelve months, is just someone who will can apply through the Bergamo Plast website, and essentially what this person will have is exposed, be exposed to modern rhinoplasty. Because I I have to restate this term, modern rhinoplasty is different from conventional rhinoplasty. You have to do structural, you have to do preservation, you have to do hybrid, you have to do revision. And so it's a a really whole world. And uh, it's not limited. I mean, a fellowship on rhinoplasty is, probably six months is hardly enough. You should probably need a year, and that's anyway my own my own portion regarding the, the RSC fellowship, it will last three months mm-hmm. and it will have a uh, it, it will it will be funded while mine is not funded. so in that case, it will be three thousand euros uh, there will be it will, it will soon be out on the website. Uh, we want to do three a year because we have some funds. And uh, I guess this is going to be a very good educational experience.
1: Brilliant. That's really great. So, the listeners out there, make sure you get hold of Prof and see if you can. Uh, you, saying a year is maybe enough for fellowship it reminds me what Faisal also said to me the other day. He said, You could do your first 100 rhinoplasties in the city that you're not going to live in one day.
0: Well, <laughs> Fazi likes make, make making jokes as yeah.
1: always. Yes. So, Prof, before we get into the topics, my last question for you is. How, what do you do for downtime? I mean, you are running around doing so much. And I follow you on Instagram and I see that you love being out in the mountains.
0: Well, I, I'm i I'm kind of lucky. I have a wonderful wife. I have a very good family that supports me. I have two great daughters. Actually, they're both into medicine without me pushing them. But I, I I I like taking some space for myself, and that space is not usually socially oriented. Uh, we love nature. We have a boat. We I like going fishing, and I like hiking a lot. So let's say sometimes I need the time to just pause, uh, which is not much. But those that time needs to be preciously uh, taken care of.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Great. Thanks, Prof. Okay, so. Um, I'm going to ask you to share the screen. I know there are three great topics we're going to chat about now. Um, and uh, I'm in, very intrigued to hear what you have to say.
0: Well, it's, it's up to you, Cam. I was just thinking of uh, three things and one of them you should sound very well to you because it's the cone beam CT scan.
1: Yes. Yes. So whilst you're now, getting that out, we we've we've just opened our new hospital and part of the new hospital is a cone beam ct scanner and um you i mean I, I before moving to the hospital we were doing conventional ct scans in in another facility but to be able to have the access of studying a cone beam ct scan with all the extra information it gives you around the soft tissue not just the bony stuff and the cartilages and stuff it's fascinating so yeah and I, I know you've had you had a really good publication in the prs i think it was um, I've been studying that article a lot, um, but yeah, you, 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 have you been able to share the screen there?
0: Well, this was this was Roland when he came in. He came into Bergamo to actually see it a few years ago, and apart from the luxury of having Roland, can you see my slides?
1: Yes, yes, I can see it.
0: Yes, it's uh, it's it's simply just a huge, huge asset, and as we explained in that P.R.S. paper, the actual beauty of this thing is that it gives you images which are number one axial coronal and sagittal on the same mpr screen and again if you look at the prs article there are some dynamic videos uh, which i don't really have the time to go over but then it gives this beautiful surface versus deep structures view And the more I play with this in time, I find out other things. For instance, you can find out the thickness of the skin. You can find out where the ethmoid plate begins and so how much bony cap you have. And in in secondary cases, you can actually even find out, for instance, how much scar somebody has. And instead of the cartilages, which should be there. So the the actual beauty of the way this reflects anatomy is essential for instance here you can see that the bony cap will extend a little bit more on the right side the remaining bony cap because this guy has been rushed previously and you can actually see where the bone ends this septum has a deviation it's interesting uh, it's like you know when you buy a new car and then you play with the buttons and everything the amount of information this thing actually gives you, for instance, regarding shape, inclination, thickness of nasal bones is considerable. You can actually study a concabulose without having an endoscope. You can see how much bony element your turbinate has, and now we use piezo for our turbinoplasty. It's a very good technique. We just published it. And you can actually, interestingly, study in progression the shape and inclination of the nasal bones. For instance, this is thick here. It's vertical. And then you can actually, something we are probably going to work on with Peter Palazzi, is the lacrimal duct system, which is kind of ignored in rhinoplasty. And this can be assessed pretty well as well. Obviously septal deviations, obviously, and you can also see so many other things, like for instance, maybe a fistula. You want to see where that fistula ends, where it will begin. I don't really have the time to show you the dynamic view. You want to see if somebody behind that fistula left a deviation because the fistula came out when somebody was trying to correct the deviation. You can actually sometimes even see where the strut was done. So you have a weak area where mucosal leaflets are adjoining one to another, and so you know that you've, this, this person is at strut. But look, you can see where the PPI junction is. So we know that in this case it's maybe a little bit posterior. And then we can measure it. In this case, we have angles regarding, for instance, where the turbinates Mm -hmm. begin. We have distances, we have angles again. We have, for instance, over a centimeter between the end of the bony cap and the beginning of the perpendicular plate. So this is just, and we can actually even measure this, this angle, for instance, the amount of information is frankly incredible. Can you do that with a conventional CT? To some extent, yes. If you use, for instance, a DICOM program, which will give you a 3D bony view. But the beauty of this thing, you do it standing, you take two minutes, you know this well, Can It really It takes about two or three minutes to actually do it. Patients don't become develop any claustrophobia. They get one-eighth of the radiation. And then once you're experienced with it, you can actually learn from it so many things you want to do preservation on someone then you will have a long bony cap or a short bony cap you want you have this post-traumatic sorry this congenitally low radix and then you will understand where you have to fill it all this uh, otherwise kind of greek nose it's a long story i can't synthesize this in a few minutes but the applications of this preview are just uh, noticeable. You can see whether that bone cap has a V-shape like here, or has an S-shape. Having a V-shape, it may be more candidate to a conventional letdown. And actually, I use it in every single case. That's what I can tell you. I, I know it's a short thing, but consider how much information you can take out of this thing. You may have an area where the septum is touching your wall. And then you may have an area of senechia, you may have polyps. You, again, mentally, as you run the axial coronal and sagittal, you develop a way of almost imagining in your mind, that septal deviation as you are running axial coronal and sagittal. So I think it's like a GPS for me when I go hiking. I think it's, it's extremely useful. Probably in my case, it's become indispensable. I would be interested to hear what you have to say also about this.
1: Yeah, so, because so, I can
0: tell you, the more you, learn, the more you use it, this will become like your favorite tool for planning.
1: No, absolutely. I mean, you're preaching to the converted here. So two, two questions I wanted to ask you around this, process Because a little bit of knowledge can be quite dangerous. How much do you think you need to spend time to work on interpreting images playing with a program getting to know it before you actually had a place where you you are in a way um you've mastered it i know we'll never really master because of the programs have so much available but uh in terms of the listeners i have a yeah just a question is how long do you think it takes for you to actually become quite good at using a cone beam ct scan
0: well i would say this is a difficult question on which i did not reflect but let me say currently I always, before the night, before. I have this habit, the night before a case, whether it's a primary or a secondary, okay. I will think the case over, I will print some photos, and then I will study my cone beam and print, make some prints out of that. So studying the cone beam of that case will take me between a little less than 10 minutes. Uh, it will also help me in figuring the operative plan which I will write on, a, on actually one of the photos, which is a profile, the following day. So part of that time is also reflected in helping me on that kind of uh, pre-run uh, list of items, which I will have to do. Now, in, when you begin, probably, I think you should probably take about half an hour for the first 10 cases, and gradually that will come down. Obviously, for instance, in a secondary case, then things may be different because you will want to understand certain items. And so you are looking for certain items. So it will become a little bit more targeted. So in my usual scenario, I will look at the nasal bones. I will look at their thickness, their inclination. By nasal bones, I also mean, obviously, the frontal process of the maxilla. I will look at my septum. I will look at my lower and mid-turbinates. And I will look in the sagittal view, that's such an important thing which people don't talk about, at the prevalence between my quadrangular plate and my bony PPE, mm-hmm. and where that PPE starts. So these are kind of the main things. Sorry. And regarding this view, I will obviously look how long the bony cap is mm-hmm. and how thick this tissue is. Mm-hmm. But these are the main things. Uh, In the secondary also there will be different elements and I will pick those elements from my notes which I wrote down when I had my first patient examination. The way I work it in my practice is the following. When I do a consultation, patients will often be aware that they need a cone beam CT. So they will often come with a cone beam CT. If they do not come with a cone beam CT, it's mandatory for them to have one. And I will discuss that in front of the patients together with the simulation mm-hmm. on my second consultation. I also I always do two consults before actually deciding for surgery. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, that's excellent. Sure. Thank you. Um, yeah, Prof, I, I, I think that really, I mean, it's, it's simple for the listeners. We need this is a new tool that we have to use. I mean, it's been used by our maxillofacial surgery colleagues for, for a long time. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. And um, shall we move on to your next topic? Yeah.
0: Well, uh, I would say one of the interesting things, but this will take an hour or even more, but I am fascinated by the preservation things. I'm The preservation concepts. I was lucky enough to understand that anatomy, although progressively... Uh, I think Peter Palazzi, frankly, for instance, is probably the best anatomist I ever met in my career. Although he is so young, but so talented, and it was difficult for me in the beginning because I was so used to have you know good results from my structural approach, and so why should I change them? And uh, can you see the slides? Yes. Yeah. So if if I if you have somebody like this and 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 then you end up, you know, two years later like this, why 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 should I really change this? It's uh, it's not that bad. And structural rhinoplasty was very precise for me, and it was giving me good results. But then I, I have this mentality; I've always had it. This is a little bit of a personal thing. When I see something new, I'm so curious. I mean. I did the same with reconstructive surgery and, uh, and, and flaps and stuff. I don't really want to say, OK, I'm comfortable in my zone, why should I learn something else and take all this time and trouble? And so I set myself with a lot of difficulty, I have to admit, uh, in understanding this new anatomy. Not all of it was new, you know, not all of it was new. This has to be said. Some of this was not new at all. but. It was seen in a different way and some of it was truly new. And then I was initially a little bit annoyed by all the hype, the magic way of pushing these humps down in a few minutes on the internet. This is something I really kind of disliked. Uh, And I frankly still dislike it in some degree, but I think this is changing also. Uh, the, The pendulum is swinging in the middle. And and at some point I said, why don't I really take the time and, and, and understand these things? And I had my learning curve, which was not easy because I restarted. Uh, and I tried to restart, not marketing driven because otherwise, you know, otherwise, uh, let me just see, it, it needs study. It's far from simple. If you do it badly, I mean, I get these mails every week of people who have done this surgery without any... Uh, the surgeon has not really exercised any control. And so this is not what I wanted. I wanted to understand things. And so I went to the main concept which I'm using now of preserving the dorsum and doing my tip my structure. So am I learning to do clothes? No, because I... Although I respect, of course, people like Boris and other friends, uh, I really don't want to take the trouble to do this closed. I, I'm so used to opening, and so I will still open. I will do my tip in a structural way. But uh, uh, regarding changes, changes are so many. Uh, you know, the, the first change is my uh, periceptal sorry, my total subperichondral, superiosteal flap uh, plane. This really has helped me, this new dissection in many cases, not all, now it's a long story, not all, but this helps. Like redefining those three points I mark, and uh, I will put them back at the end of surgery in three spots paraceptal cleft and the vertical scroll. I mean, I reattach them and it's, I really don't have the time to show this. And this has made my noses compartmentalized and much less swollen. And then I I, I have really readdressed the full push down and the cartilaginous push down. And the way I've kind of worked around this is to add another ingredient to both which is obviously the use of piezo. I mean, the use of piezo is indispensable. I am really in depth with my dear friend Olivier. It, it, at the beginning, I was a little bit in doubt, but that doubt only lasted six months because I was using piezo at the end of of 2014. And we had gone to, to Nice at the end of a Bergamo course in March 2014, so... But the changes I make in cartilaginous pushdown, which we published a couple of years ago, together actually with Kenzie, and in full pushdown, is that I want to split my bone, my mid vault. And so we are getting even more hybrid, because if you open the mid vault, according to the septal T anatomy, the septal T concept we published regarding the use of the septal T—that's a different paper a few years previously—but if you do it in a semi-sharp way, you will have so many advantages because you will extend your indications and uh, shape either in modified push down or full push down, full let down. You can shape the mid so you extend your indications considerably. Again, it's a very long story, but. Uh, I can say now that with some modifications, I will open the mid vault in many occasions. I will use either a full letdown with circumferential circumvert, circumferential osteotomies by piezo. Then I will use different maneuvers to actually, depending whether I do a high septal strip, medium high medium, which I use most of the time, but I want to see under direct vision. So I'm again marrying structural to preservation here. This will not move because this is fixed. And uh, really the results you get with this concept, uh, this hybridization is so interesting. This is really six weeks post-op. She's from the Middle East and... And, of course, this tip has to be structural. But uh, you can actually see that she has a very good control. I kept her high because of her ethnicity. But she has a very good control of this uh, keystone area, which I essentially... uh, with which I play under direct vision. This is really so important. And by doing this, I can also extend again the indications to people who would not be candidates for uh, for conventional letdown procedures. Uh, I am, in a way, hybridizing everything. And I think this is one of the most important concepts. I know it's difficult to explain in a few minutes. But... Uh, if you put together, for instance, like this guy, he has a little bit of a whitish vault here. He has a tip which will need, obviously, restructuring. But my concept is opening the mid vault. In this case, it's a cartilaginous push down. I have seen my, on my cone beam that his bony cap was not much. And uh, I'm hybridizing structural for the tip. And preservation for the Dawson Uh, again it's uh, a fascinating new world I don't really have time to show more of this but we can really have results which previously I did not they are a little bit better and sooner achieved than the ones I had previously with just being structural i share this philosophy with some other people one of them for instance i spoke to a few times is sam most he's really kind of seeing it in a similar way and uh, it's fascinating it's it's worth the time worth the trouble worth the learning curve and you know in bergamo that's our motto
1: well that's great i think it's, it's going to be very important because I, unfortunately because of COVID, i couldn't get to Goxall's course uh, a few weeks ago in istanbul but I'm very glad that we'll be able to do it in Bergamo, Because, Prof, I think you nailed it there at the start with saying that it seems to be something people like to market, to say I'm a preservation rhinoplasty surgeon. Um, but we've got to be careful about how we market ourselves because it's difficult surgery.
0: Well, as, as, as you know, I, I'm a little bit strict on this, and marketing is something I do with moderation because I'm always a little bit... I, I really don't want to err on the side of overdoing it. It's, maybe it's my nature. But I consider preservation as one of the best things that happen to rhinoplasty, one of the most dangerous things that happen to rhinoplasty if it's not well done. Mm. And and so it's not an easy bird. It's not an easy bird at
1: all. <clears throat> um, one of the things you mentioned now was in terms of piezo. So we're also excited to got piezo at the new hospital. Um, normally when you are be going to have to use the piezo tome on the bony work on the side of the nose, you, you are um, exposing more than you would have in a conventional rhinopla- open rhinoplasty, if I'm correct. Uh,
0: my answer is yes and no. Uh, I have now come to, I, I really want, I mean, I don't use piezo in a closed approach. You could do this with a discrete incision intranasally, but I think it's a little bit dangerous. And people don't say that for some reason, but I can tell you, I've had three or four instances in which I burnt the skin. So in one case, unfortunately, I had to do a, a wedge revision. And so piezo, if you don't do it well, it does burn the skin. But you need to expose things. And um, if I do my osteotomy, my low to low osteotomy with piezo, and I know I will do it really low, I will need to expose a couple of millimeters at least to the side. And if that skin will be a thick, unelastic, redundant skin, then I will expose even more just to let the skin redrape. But the answer is yes. With piezo, I will expose a little bit more, but uh, I have my little tricks on this because essentially, uh, you have an area let me let me show you this i'm not sure it's here but uh, i I now am a little bit maniac about okay about what happens to this uh, to this area. so number one, I put nasal splints oh, sorry, I put sidewall splints. I want to kill that dead space. Mm-hmm. But I I was playing with drains for a while, now I kind of stopped it. But I like to compress this space because this is where you don't really want the blood to accumulate. And that's the area you have dissected a little bit widely when doing piezo. So essentially, especially when I do this push down thing or when I use piezo anyway, I will compress this area specifically, both by sidewall splints, and that's just killing that space, as well as these little foam dressings. Uh, So, in answering yes, you have a little bit more exposure. It's not always a full wide exposure, it can be just a little bit just outside the uh, planned uh, osteotomy line, but then you have to compress the space. Otherwise, you end up in a very unfavorable situation of some fibrosis happening exactly where you don't want
1: it. Well, that answered my question about how to deal with a bigger dissection. Okay, one last question around piezo for my Is You mentioned that you're doing turbinoplasties or turbinectomies with it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you do that?
0: Well, I don't have this on my computer, unfortunately. but uh, But essentially, let me see if I can... Maybe we are lucky. This was published together with my previous fellow, uh, Ali Kazal from Baghdad, great rhinoplasty rhinoplasty surgeon. And let me see if I can actually. So I'm not so sure how to... So I wasn't sure how to silence this video. You see, I make a little incision. I go with my... I've studied my anatomy of the turbinate, whether it's bony or whether it's mostly mucosal. And then I will just follow the anatomy. This is not the best video. I just picked one by chance. And you can see that this will fracture the turbinate in a very efficient way. Uh, Again, it depends on whether the turbinate is mostly bony or mucosal. Uh, If there's a lot of bone, I will essentially use the piezo to address the fracture in a very controlled way and then I will lateralize it forever, if that's clear. That's fantastic. Once you do it, it's, it's going to be very, very clear. You will actually feel the piezo. You cut the uncinate bone attachment, and then you will just feel the fracture in the exact place you want to do it. Now, you will ask me, why don't I just lateralize with some scissors and break the bone? It's not the same thing. If you do it by piezo, this will stay in its new position. It's not going to bounce back.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I'm sure that the heat generated's is going to do something to the soft tissue as well and cause some fibrosis and, and um, the soft well, tissue. Well, and shrinking. especially,
0: you're not causing bleeding. I mean, bleeding is really
1: minimal. Wow.
0: For the obvious advantage of using piezo.
1: Oh, that's great, eh? Okay, Prof, um, let's crack on with the, with the last topic. Um, because uh, this is specifically in South Africa, something we, we see more of is having to actually augment the dorsum.
0: Well, this was, this was something that came uh, really... Okay, hang on, because I took a wrong presentation. <clears throat> Let me see if I find... another one. Alright, I will have to use something else because this was an audio presentation which doesn't really
1: work. Prof looking at your desktop and the amount of preservation I mean presentations you've got there, it's like an encyclopedia there.
0: Yeah, it's terrible. I know. It's it's just terrible.
1: I hope it's all backed up very well.
0: Yeah, it is, hopefully yes. Now the concept has been this, you know. When you want a, an aesthetic dorsum, uh I've always had difficulties because things may happen. You you don't want this. This is badly done, obviously. You don't want this these alloplasts, you really don't want conca, not for me, it's kind of irregular. Uh what what you really want is uh something which makes uh, the dorsum smooth and with appropriate dorsal lines. We published this in PRS uh, recently. And the concept is, see this guy, he has obviously regularities. Let's forget the tip. Let's just concentrate on his dorsum. And you have three ingredients from the same site. You have fascia, you have perichondrium, and you have a rib lamination if you want it. So you have something which you can place on that dorsum under direct vision, suturing it to the residual upper lath and fixating the radix with a trans suture if needed. And that something is a hybrid which I took from different concepts. And uh, it's a long story, but again, let me, let me show you this case. She has a graft placed by somebody, which is a septal graft. So she has no septum left. I mean, that septal graft is obviously a problem. So where are the dorsal lines? There, there's no dorsal line. <clears throat> She's ridiculously scooped. Some scooping was corrected by the graft. She is embarrassed socially of going around. And she has thin skin, which is, for me, it's an advantage. And obviously breathing issues. She has a piece of something sticking here, which is her graft. And by the way, this is a trick which people should understand. They don't think about it. Excising some skin at the columella People don't think about this. But if you see this construct is a construct which is placed on top in place of the previous graft. So what is it made of? It's made of perichondrium which, as Dean has taught us, has a Velcro effect. So it will stick on the new dorsum, on the dorsal plateau. And then there's a rib lamination, and then there's fascia on top. So essentially, this is a hybrid. It's a sandwich of perichondrium placed as it was on the original rib, fascia... And then if you find the right rib segment, I've been, we are now, I'm, I've not counted them, but I'm pretty sure we're far over a hundred cases. And I can tell you, I've not had one single shift. Hmm. So that may sound a little bit preposterous, but that's a fact. And I think the reason is that this item, you have pericondrium, it will stick immediately. Mm-hmm. And then you have the laminate if you need it. And then you have the fascia. And then you have this fringe. To which you can suture and then you can shape your lamination as needed and essentially you are placing this item like a finger in a glove and this is just going to fit so this will stick now i am doing this more and more with more changes i am being very precise i am doing it even for direct augmentation in asian patients obviously not in secondaries and you can see this reconstitutes, in a way, a precise dorsum. In a man, it can be a little bit wider uh, because of the greater width at the keystone. And essentially, it's a first a matter of having a dorsal plateau on which to stick it, which is irregular here. the bones are wide and then essentially it will be placed in a way that it will just stick down and do its job. I've been very impressed with this technique. Now, one of the issues is that you have to do it well between the bones because otherwise it may shift. So you need two sutures to hold it and sometimes a delicately placed, uh, a delicately placed Transosseous suture. Say if she has the bones up to here, uh, you may need a little hack like goobish mm-hmm. goobish hack uh suture, which I will pre place, I will leave it tied, and then I will gently tie it on top of the graft because I don't want this thing to shift. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So you see the construct. It's placed here, and then here I will use a little transosseous de- suture. And um, I, I can I can really say uh, it obviously depends on the skin quality and other things, but it's it's really a very good technique. Now, if the skin is thicker, you will have to reason it a little bit differently. I mean, this is thickish skin. So you will really need the lamination and the lamination will be a little bit less beveled. You want semi-sharp edges, right? And to get this right, I will use a lamina. It doesn't show here because it's already been buried, which is a little bit more robust just to get this. And, and, And that will lead me to a, Shape, which will show better through the thick skin. Uh, The thicker the skin, like this is from Northern Europe, that kind of skin almost would warrant a laminated rib graft without any addition. But I will just place a stronger uh, lamina here and then use the same principle. So I find this technique very interesting. You can actually play with it. You can add two laminas. You can stack it. Uh, Thick skin like this. Terribly thick skin. It's mostly a matter of a stronger lamina. Thin skin. You can actually avoid the lamina sometimes. Just use perichondrium and fascia. And what I also like is substitute. For instance, this is a... Uh, extrusion of done, done somewhere with cadaver rib which was coming out and in those cases i will just uh wash it with uh, with pressure wash lavage and i will go ahead to direct uh, substitution with a sp in this case it was an splf graft so Uh, They're not perfect. Perfection is Photoshop and makeup and different uh, perspectives of uh, different projections. But essentially I go in from memory, I always go in from memory, I don't care which rib I take, it's five or six. And uh, the concept is from that same site you have fascia and perichondrium and you join these things according to your uh, requisites. One thing I may want to show is the way I harvest my rib, I always go, sorry it's not lateral, it's medial, to a vertical line tangential to the lateral edge of the areola. This, this point is where the bone is. And I always take five or six, I don't really even count it. I go through my superficial fascia, and then I will expose my deep fascia, that has been first described by Nadim, for a rectus fascia DCF, which is an even different solution. And that fascia will be cleaned. I don't go through the muscle fibers. I just spread them so the muscle is not transacted because the direction changes. And then I will use an osteotome here, very occasionally piezo, very, very occasionally. And these are my rib elevators, which I have made for this purpose. And then essentially you have the three elements you are harvesting. And the key is proper lamination multiple laminations, different thicknesses, the calcification is a long story, some calcifications actually help you, depending how you use them, and some laminas can be very, very thin, so that you can use them for the tip, but that's a different thing, right, so I gave an impression, an idea of what this strange animal of fascia, perichondrium, and rib, can work for a a static dorsal reconstruction All right it's much better than the dcf you know i i started from the dcf but dcf is a good idea i was tailoring it in recent years with precise measurements i was making a little uh suture here to compartmentalize the space this was a concept that had been uh, originated by a surgeon from the uk i forget his name now he actually died a few years ago and uh, this is still a sausage. It's a nice sausage, but it's a sausage. And it may migrate to one side as it happened here. And so I think that the DCF is not as uh, appropriate as, as making this graft. Now the problem with this graft, you need to spend some time on it. It has to be sutured very precisely, and it has to be done according to precise uh, technique and measurements.
1: So Prof, I mean that's it's fascinating. I've, I've seen this before and I think it's, uh, it gives a great, great natural looking result. I'd like to ask you a question about um, the tissue glue graft that, that I know it's in, in the, some of our colleagues in Asia and some of our colleagues in the, in the States have, have been using it quite a lot. What, what is some of your, can I ask you your views on that?
0: Well, my views are very uh, poor, and not poor because I don't estimate it, but I tried it twice, and I think I was given it as a gift. The seal, the way I did it, probably didn't do it well. It, it became like a whitish mass, and I couldn't discriminate what was this seal from what was uh, what was actually the graft. But I used it in a different way. I was just playing with diced cartilage, plastic seal. I know the way, young Jung does it, is a little bit different. He has his mold. Personally, I would not want to use it because I would fear it would give me a misestimate of the volume. Mm -hmm. If I use a SPLF, it's that. Then I'm very... I I have really a very low threshold towards harvesting rib. Mm -hmm. I like my perichondrium. I have uses for it. Sometimes I, I use it as a patch for the tip. You well know that it's the best material resembling... When we did the cephalic form of the lower cartilages, which is almost unheard of nowadays, I knew I loved that thing to make an anatomical camouflage. Now I can't use that anymore, so I love perichondrium, for instance. Well, And then I can play with my fascia. So I have all these ingredients. Why should I really take something from a shelf... Play with diced cartilage which would still be diced from the rib and you know well that if you dice cartilage from the rib it won't be the same thing as dicing septum because it's a little bit different. Uh, I now developed a a personal inserter which looks a little bit like uh, others that are on the market but still if you press diced cartilage from the rib in that inserter you really have to strain it. So I don't really want that stuff without covering Mm -hmm. and uh, what I could do possibly say in a case where I have an SPLF and still need a little bit more than I could use some finely diced cartilage on top but still I want uh, fascia on top Uh, essentially my answer I know I went a little bit off the side but my answer to your question was I did it twice I didn't like doing it and I don't want to do it
1: (laughs) Professor, one last question around this I mean the I uh, uh, the majority of your work is is revision rhinoplasty and way up caught
0: No. You, it's about fifty percent.
1: Okay, fifty percent. So the question yeah. I has in, in I have at least in your primary rhinoplasties, how much rib cartilage are you harvesting? Is that gonna you know, first do your C T scan well, and then decide from there? Uh,
0: that's a good question. Well I it's it's a little bit through the CT scan now. If it's a post traumatic case, I will be uh, I will know that I could very well end up in rib harvesting, and then CT scan will really help me. Uh, these are the cases where I consent people for rib harvesting. But let let me say, in most primary cases without a trauma history. I would consider, I think I did it twice or three times, and I had to talk to the relatives about it. And those times were, once I remember there was a girl, and she, I mean, she was so flimsy, uh, the cartilages were so flimsy, and the tip was so needful of real structure that I just did not have enough. Mm-hmm. Now, if I did more of a nation population, then I would think differently. I'm starting to do some Asian patients. I don't do many. I do mostly people from many countries, but many from the Middle East and, but most and also other countries, but they're mostly Caucasian. I don't have that exposure to Asians. But I guess if I did more Asians, I would probably, almost actually certainly, consider primary uh, rib harvesting much more frequently. Yes. But still, I don't like to take it in any other area except below the breast.
1: That's great. Uh, prof, that's been one hour of intense rhinoplasty and learning all sorts of other things about you. So um, I want to, from from both from the rhinoplasty side of, of the podcast, but also just in terms of there are so many surgeons around the world that you've had an immense influence on. And uh, we want to just sincerely thank you for that. Thank you for how you are teaching. Thank you for running your ber- Bergamo course. Thank you for your passion for rhinoplasty. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I just want to say thank you, and thank you for taking time out tonight after a long day. Well, well,
0: Cam, let me just say one thing. We we should not keep, uh, uh, I I see no reason at all to keep what we know for ourselves. It makes no sense. Uh, At least I I just don't understand it. uh, So it's necessary to share knowledge, because otherwise it wouldn't make any sense. That's my concept. And even in the Rhinoclast Society of Europe, I think we have this probably very honest goal which is sharing knowledge. It's uh, it's a difficult surgery, and so what we can have through experience and even bad results initially has to be shared. Mm. It's it's key. It's
1: great. eh? It's great. Well, Prof, thank you very much. And um, to all the listeners out there, make sure you tune in next week. We've got some exciting um, preservation rhinoplasty surgeons coming to you for the month of August. So thanks again for listening and Prof, thank you again for your time tonight.
0: Thank you, Cam, and have a good night.
1: So ladies and gents, thanks for listening um, and thanks, super, super big shout out to Suter Technic, um from Germany for supporting us. Um, I'd like to give you the email address for Nadine Burghardt. She is um, head of sales and you can contact her if you want any of the amazing instruments that they have on offer. So her email address is nadine.berghard at suter slash med.de so that is n-a-d-i-n-e dot b-u-r-g-h-a-r-d at suter that's s-u-t-t-e-r forward stroke m-e-d dot D-E. so thank you very much for listening and suter thanks so much for your support um you guys are international company from germany supporting the european masters